Well, hey, my name is Adam, and it's great to be with you this morning. If we haven't had a chance to meet yet, I'd love the opportunity to get to know you after the service. And again, I want to welcome you to Redemption Church. Uh, we're really glad that you're here this morning. Uh, for me, I look forward to Sunday mornings every single week. It's kind of the high point of my week. I feel like Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday all lead to Sunday. And so it's really good to be together with you. Uh, I know that we live in the Midwest, and it's been kind of a weird winter. Uh, it seems like winter is trying to pack itself in just a couple weeks, but you're survivors. You've made it. Uh, you've hopefully dug out uh, your driveways, and you made it here today. We know there's some people who aren't here just because of the cold, and it's still a little icy, and we get that. We want people uh, to be safe. And so one of the things we're, we're trying out, kind of an experiment, uh, something we're doing this morning is we are live streaming our service as of now. So we can celebrate that. Uh, there's some people at home. Yeah, praise God. And so uh, people on Facebook, welcome. If, you, uh, if you've logged on and you're watching, we are praying for you. We love you. And we hope you're able to track along with us this morning. Well, hey, Redemption Church is a place where everyone is welcome and no one is perfect. I often talk about us lovingly as the island of misfit toys. Uh, it just kind of works under Jesus, that we, we all have baggage, we all have hurts, we all have hang-ups, we all have things we're struggling with, and yet because of the love that Jesus has for us, because of the grace and the mercy, because of the power of the Holy Spirit, it somehow works. We can come together, fix our eyes on Jesus, we can love one another and walk alongside each other as we follow Jesus. We believe faith is a journey, not a guilt trip. We're not here to make you feel bad, we're not here to guilt you, we're not here to judge you, we just want to talk about who Jesus is, learn about the God of the Bible, and follow him. And so that's what we're going to do this morning, amen? Well, hey, a couple weeks ago, we started a brand new series called Explore God. And if you've been paying attention, Explore God is not unique to us. In fact, uh, we are partnering with about 800 churches uh, throughout the Chicagoland area who, like us, over the next seven weeks, are really taking time to explore what I'm calling the big seven questions, questions that every single one of us wrestle with at some point in our lives. In fact, if you're a Christ follower, my guess is at some point, someone will ask you one of these questions and how you've wrestled with that. So I'm going to try to step out of the way, but we have a map we'll throw up there for you. And so you can see uh, all the red is, you know, the closer to Chicago. But if you look at Belvedere, there we are. Like we're on the map, okay? Okay, so we've arrived. We're on the map. Uh, and so, uh, you know, there's kind of like a line there. I'm not sure what's, it's like there's a, somebody put up a sign that says dragons beyond this point. Uh, so we live in the dragon lands, I guess, but we're here and we're excited to answer these questions with you. Last week, we asked the question, is God real? And that was a big question to try to wrestle with in, in one Sunday. And so we put that message online and we invited you to have conversations to get together with people. And if you're still wrestling with that, we'd love to be a part of that. And today we're going to ask another big question and go to the scripture and try to answer it. And here's the question. What makes Jesus unique? Uh, maybe maybe uh, another way to ask that question is, uh, what makes different Jesus? Uh, what, what makes Jesus different? Uh, so what would make Jesus different than, let's say, Abraham, who people who ascribe to the Jewish faith would follow Father Abraham because of the promises or the covenants that God made with Abraham? Or what makes Jesus different than, let's say, the prophet Muhammad, who is uh, kind of the founder of the Muslim faith and claimed to hear from God and was a prophet. What makes Jesus different than, let's say, Buddha, the guy whose statue is in every Chinese buffet you've ever 
been to? What makes Jesus different? Uh, what sets Jesus apart? Maybe the question is this, is Jesus really God? Now here's the thing. I think as we answer some of these questions, we're really kind of three categories of people. And there's probably more than that, but my guess is there's subcategories. But I think that if you're listening to this, there's probably three categories you, you fit into. The, the first one would be was the people who are searching for an answer, the wonderers. Like, hey, I, I've always wondered about this, or I want to get some help with this question. And if that's you, I invite you to lean in this morning. I invite you to pay attention. Take, take some notes. Go, hey, is this... Is this helpful? What do I think about this? Are there questions that arise? Because for those that are you are seeking or you're wondering, what the scripture says in Jeremiah 29, 13, it's a promise to you that if you seek God with your whole heart, you will find him. That's a promise. That if you seek God, you'll, you'll find God. That God's not like this mischievous God that plays hide and seek with us. And he's like, you might try, but I'm a really good hider and you'll never find me. That's not God. God says, if you seek me, you'll find me. Now, for some of you here, you're going to fit into a different category. You're going to say, hey, I already believe in Jesus. Like, I, my answer is, yeah, he is different. Yeah, I do believe in him. I, I believe that he is the unique son of God, and he's the Messiah. But here's the deal. I don't want you to check out this morning. Uh, because I think there's two things that should happen in, in us that we already believe. The first one is this, is that my hope is this empowers you. So I'd invite you to take notes, because if somebody ever came up to you and said, How, why do you believe Jesus is different? I'm giving you some tools in your toolbox this morning. Uh, that way, if somebody ever asks you that question, you, you can't say, well, I don't know. No one's ever really answered that for me. I just kind of believe. I think the other thing that happens that if you already believe in Jesus, one of the things that happens then is, is we go through these things. This is an opportunity for worship. You know, we, we talk about at Redemption Church that worship is a lifestyle. That, that getting together and fixing our eyes on Jesus and, and singing songs is definitely a part of our worship. But we don't only worship on Sunday mornings. And part of our worship is the way we respond to God, the way we sing to God, the way we honor God for who He is, the way we respond to Him revealing Himself to us. And so as we go through the Scripture this morning, if you're a Christ follower, this is an opportunity to worship and to look at the beauty and the majesty and the goodness and the greatness of God. Uh, maybe the last category that you would fit in this morning is this, is you would say, hey, uh, I've made up my mind about this question and I don't believe in Jesus. Like, I think he was a, a really great teacher. I think maybe he had some good things to say. I might even believe that he did some real miracles, but I don't think anything sets him apart. And here's what I want you to know. You're welcome here not here to judge you, not here to hit you with a hammer. We're not going to kick you out if you doubt or you, you don't believe. That's not who we are. But I would invite you to lean in this morning and at least be willing to open your mind for the next 30 minutes and go, hey, what do I do with a couple of the things he's talking about this morning? Because let's be honest, most of us over the last week have at least gone online or turned on the TV to watch the news channels. And even though there's things like fake news and disputed, you know, stuff, like you do your homework and you get on there and you go, hey, I think I learned something today. And like, so for those of you that maybe don't believe, like, could we at least believe that this scripture is at least as true as the things you're reading online to get your information? 
Like, would you just take that step this morning? I'm, I'm just asking you to put that much faith to go, hey, maybe we can trust this thing a little bit more than CNN, Fox News, the Drudge Report, any of that. Like, would you just be willing to go, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be willing to investigate and, and let them use some scripture to answer some questions this morning. So I know we're answering a big question, so would you pray with me as we get started this morning? We're going to ask for God's blessing, and we're going to dive right in. Father, we come before you in the name of Jesus, and I ask you that you'd be with us this morning. God, as we talk about Jesus, your son, this morning, I pray that the Holy Spirit would make your word come alive to us, God, that you would reveal yourself to us in a real, practical way, God. God, I pray that I wouldn't get in the way this morning. I pray that the meditations of my heart and the words of my mouth would be honoring and pleasing to you this morning. I pray that you would direct me and guide me, that nothing I would say would get in the way, but your word would be proclaimed in this place this morning, that we would be people that hear your word and we respond to you this morning, Jesus. So it's your name that we pray, God. We need your help. Be with us. Amen. Well, hey, Patrick uh, opened up the service this morning and read John chapter 5 for you this morning. And so if you want to turn your Bible back on or reopen, hopefully you kept that page. That's what we're going to be is in John chapter 5. And John chapter 5 is kind of an interesting uh, place to start as we answer this question, but I promise you we're going to get there. Uh, One of the things I love about scripture is is that uh, one of the things that happens more and more, and you can Google this, Google is your friend, is that when the scriptures talk about real places, uh, because of guys like Indiana Jones, like in real life, archaeologists, Uh, archaeologists tend to dig up the past and reveal that the stuff in scripture that is talked about is there. And so if you go to Jerusalem today, you can go to the pool of Bethsaida. They've actually discovered it. And one of the things that's interesting is it talks about there's this pool and around this pool are these five pillars. Well, uh, guess what happened when they dug it up? There was a big pool with five pillars. And a lot of times what happens with scripture is archaeologists, as they go back and dig up and get to places that were around in Bible times, we find that when the Bible says something was there, it was actually there. Now, if you were to go to Jerusalem and you would go to the pool of Bethsaida, one of the things that it talks about is that uh, there's a big festival going on, that there's a lot of people around town. Just think about Thanksgiving, Christmas, people coming back home, people going to the city. The reason that you would go to Jerusalem is because the temple is there. And you would go to the temple to get into the presence of God, to sing the praises of God. And what what Jesus does, what John reveals to us, is that when Jesus goes to Jerusalem during the festival, is he goes through the sheep gate. Now, Now, I would just suggest to you that the sheep gate is not the best gate to go through as you're going through Jerusalem, because the sheep gate was given its name because that's where the sheep went through. And the reason the sheep went through is because they were going to the temple to eventually be sacrificed. And what happens is is Jesus goes to a place where there's a bunch of people who are sick, a bunch of people who are hurting, a bunch of people who are paralyzed, kind of the outcasts, can't fend for themselves, can't work a job. And what the scripture says in verse 5 is that he comes across a man who had been an invalid for 38 years. Now, this stuck out to me because I'm 38 years old. And I, I don't know what I did. Something happened to my foot. I've been limping around, around the last couple of weeks. I, I sat down because my foot hurt so bad. By God's grace, it's getting better. And that's been like two and a half weeks. Like, I couldn't imagine if my foot hurt the way it hurt for 38 years. I mean, this guy had been sick for my entire lifetime. So Jesus goes there, and what the Scripture says is there's a multitude of invalids. 
a multitude of people who can't walk, who can't work, who can't function properly because there's sickness and injury in their body. And what's interesting is that the pool of Bethsaida has a history of healing. But we're not exactly sure how this works, but what, what, what the scripture says is that there was kind of this assumption or this urban legend or this belief that an angel would come from heaven and stir the pool. So maybe think like a jacuzzi, the jet's turning on. And what would happen is as soon as the jet's turned on, the first invalid or the first sick person to get into the pool would instantly be healed. But if you were the second person, you were out of luck. Like because you, you just missed out on the miracle. Now for those of you who are in your Bibles, like one of, I'm going to give you a lot of scripture today. One of the things you'll notice in John chapter 5 is that in our modern Bibles, if you're using an NIV, an ESV, an NASB, there's no verse 4 in John chapter 5. It goes 1, 2, 3, 5. Now, I went to public school and didn't pay attention, but listen, I know that's not right. I know we're missing a number. Now, the reason verse 4 is missing is because his, his modern translations have gone back and found some of the best and the most original manuscripts in the original languages, what they've noticed is verse 4 is not in there in the original languages. That eventually somebody added that to try to explain what was happening there. And so what modern translations have done is they've tried to get really good at saying, hey, we want to be as close and as accurate as possible to the original manuscripts. They took it out. Now, most of your Bibles will say down below, somewhere in your footnotes, why they took verse 4 out. Because what verse 4 says is that waiting for the moving of the water, for an angel of the Lord went down at a certain season into the pool and stirred the water. Whoever stepped in the first after the stirring of the water was healed of whatever disease he had. Now here's what I want to suggest to you. I appreciate that the modern translations took the verse out because they did not find grounds to have it in there originally, that it was added later. I also think it doesn't really change anything when it comes to this context because the focus of John chapter 5 is not how did the pool work. The focus of John chapter 5 is Jesus, who he is, and what he's going to do. But it does give us some background that the reason that there were so many people around this pool was because there was this belief that if the jacuzzi jets turned on and you were the first person in the water, you would be healed. And so John chapter 5 verse 6 says, When Jesus saw him, this is the guy that had been there for my entire lifetime, he knew that he had already been there for a long time, and Jesus said to him, do you want to be healed? Now, this is an interesting question because if I go to the doctor and I'm sick, and he says to me, well, do you want to get better? I think the assumption is, bro, that's why I'm here. <laughs> like the reason I made an appointment and came here is because I want to be well. And so Jesus' question is, is kind of interesting. Now, there's a couple of different thoughts on this. One of the thoughts is that Jesus is just asking the question, like, hey, do you want to get well? Because maybe the guy didn't want to get well. Uh, maybe got, the guy enjoyed the attention he received. Maybe he enjoyed the community from the invalid pool. Like, there, there's kind of this thing. There's another theory that would say this whole thing was a hoax. That the people would kind of spread the rumors, kind of spread the urban, urban legend. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When the pool jets turn on, the first 
person in gets healed. And so what you would do is you would maybe bring a sick family member and then there'd be somebody there that says, hey, I can get them closer to the pool, you know, for a little moolah. Like if you were willing to pay, we can open up the easy pass. And one of the things could be that this man was actually a part of that, spreading kind of those rumors, getting people to come to the pool. And so Jesus' question is, do you want to be healed? And I find John chapter 5 or 7 interesting because the sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up and while I'm going, another steps down before me. So he doesn't answer Jesus' question. He's like, well, here's the thing. Like, I can't get into the pool. Like, whenever I get close, like, I'm so close, but because of my, uh, of my limitations and my disability, every time I try to get into the pool, someone beats me to the pool, and so, like, I just haven't been able to get myself healed. So the man does not answer Jesus' question. Like, do you want to be healed as a yes or a no? And he's like, well, let me tell you about my situation, and let me tell you about my problems. And I think this is interesting because Jesus just stops asking questions. Like, Jesus, there's no follow-up. There's no discussion. John chapter 5, verse 8, Jesus says to him, get up, take your bed, and walk. And verse 9 says, at once, the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. This is an instantaneous healing. Jesus says, hey, get up and go. And the guy goes, for the first time, I'm able to get up and go. They haven't been able to do this for 38 years. And he gets up and goes. Sometimes Jesus heals instantaneously. Sometimes Jesus heals through medicine, surgeries, process, physical therapy. He uses all of that. But Jesus has the power, which he shows us in John chapter 5, where he just goes, you are instantly healed. Get up and go. Now here's where this whole thing goes bad. This is like Darth Vader entering the scene in Star Wars. The music changes. John chapter 9, verse 5. We'll, we'll look at that second half now that day was the Sabbath. This is dun, dun, dun. See, the Sabbath day is a holy day. And God gave us part of the Ten Commandments that just like in the creation of the world, God worked for six days and rest on the seventh day, that if you're a follower of God, if you're a person of faith, that you have the Lord's day, a day of rest, that you would work for six and the seventh day you rest. And the reason you rest on the seventh day is to be in the presence of God, is to experience the peace of God, and it's to give God the glory to say, hey, I'm not going to work, I'm not going to toil, I'm not going to try to make money today because I don't hold the whole world in my hands. God, you do. That like the reason you can take a nap on a Saturday is because you're not God. And sometimes the most spiritual thing you can do is rest. Now the reason this got tricky is because religious people like to add to God's word. And see what happens in Exodus chapter 20 verses 8 to 11. I'll read this for you. This is one of the commandments that God gives, part of the Ten Commandments. Interesting enough, the commandment of rest is the longest commandment. Like, thou shalt not lie. This is a little longer than that one. Okay, Here, here's what it says. Exodus chapter 28 and 11. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all of your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you, your son, or your daughter, your male servant, or your female servant, or your livestock, or the sojourner within your gates. For in the sixth day of the Lord... 
made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So here's what God says to his people in the Old Testament. On the seventh day, you rest, your families rest. If you have guests in town, they rest. If you have employees, they get rest because this is the day of the Lord. Don't assume that you can do more with seven days than God can do with six days. So you rest. Now what happened is the religious police came in and said, hey, we have to really make sure that people follow this rule, so we have to change it, we have to kind of add to it, we have to set up some barriers that keep people so far away from even coming close to breaking the commandment. Now the Jewish calendar is a little bit different than our calendar, so the Sabbath was on a Saturday, but the way they measured it, it was sundown Friday to sundown Saturday. So the minute it got dark on Friday, it was in the Sabbath. Now what had happened is religious leaders had added to God's word, added to God's truth, added to God's command, and came up with some pretty awesome rules to help you keep track, uh, to make sure that you weren't breaking the Sabbath. One of them was you could only walk so many steps during the Sabbath. So you kind of had to plan it out. Like assume you're going to use the restroom. How many steps is that going to take? Like in our day, you would just get your step tracker watch and keep track, right? Like I'm getting close, like no more potty breaks. I got to stay on the couch because I can't walk so many steps. Otherwise, if I go over my steps, I will break the Sabbath. And so some of you have goals to step each day. On the Sabbath day, you'd struggle because you'd have to keep that number low. Like to make sure that you didn't break the Sabbath, you could not do something like pick a strawberry from your garden. That's work. You're harvesting. Uh, there's no making bread. Uh, one of the reasons you cannot make bread is because during the Sabbath, it is illegal to start a fire of any kind. Which, by the way, that like today would include like your stove. That's fire. You could make a salad. So you could take pre-picked lettuce and put it in a bowl. But you could not cook any meat because that would require a fire. In fact, the rule went so far, I thought this one was awesome, is if you were maybe like being really spiritual and you were in your prayer journal and you misspelled something wrong, if you erased two letters to then rewrite a word, that was considered work. You could not erase more than one letter during the Sabbath. And so what happens is, is Jesus encounters this man and says, you are healed. And then what happens is the religious police show up with their clipboards and go, we have to investigate this. We need to write a report about this. We need to determine if this was really holy or if this was really sinful. So they show up in John chapter 5, verses 12 to 13 to the man who had been an invalid for 38 years. And they ask him the question, who told you to do this? Who told you that you could get up and take your mat and walk home on the Sabbath. And I love verse 13. It says, Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn and there was a crowd in the place. So Jesus heals this man. The man doesn't ask Jesus, like, uh, Hey, what's your name? Hey, I want to thank you for what you've done. Hey, I want to give you the praise and the glory. Like, he goes his way. Jesus escapes from the miracle, walks away. And the man has no idea who healed him. I found this odd. Like, if you walked up to me on the street and gave me 20 bucks, I'd at least ask you, like, hey, what's your name? I, I want to thank you for, for what you've done. 
right? Like you heal me from something that I've struggled with for 38 years. The man doesn't even ask, hey, who are you? And by the way, thanks for healing me. Now what's interesting is the reason now that this man wants to know Jesus' name is because he needs to throw Jesus under the bus. Someone has to be blamed for his sinfulness on the Sabbath. He goes, listen, there's some guy, he healed me. He told me to pick up my mat and go home, but I don't remember who he was. And there's some tension here that Jesus, who ends this man's suffering, will now suffer because of this man's healing. So John chapter 5 verse 14 says afterwards John found him in or afterwards Jesus found him in the temple and said said to him see you are well like look I healed you and then he tells him sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you verse 15 the man went away and told the Jews it was Jesus who had healed him like still no thankfulness still no gratitude still no praise it's like hey thanks for telling me your name. He runs to the religious guys with clipboards and goes, I know the guy's name who healed me and told me to get up and walk on the Sabbath. His name is Jesus. Like now before we get too angry at this guy, like can we admit that sometimes we're more interested in what God can do for us than in God himself? Like, listen, you ever been in that place where you really need God to show up so you seek him, looking for his activity or his blessing rather than just looking for him? Like, can we assume that sometimes there's people in churches who come sing some songs, hear some messages, uh, hope it's all done in under an hour and 15 minutes, and if God doesn't show up, if he doesn't answer our prayers, if we don't feel hashtag blessed, then we walk out on Sunday morning and we don't think about him, we have no affection for him, we don't walk in obedience to him, and we give him no praise. That's, that's where this guy is. Like, hey, God, work but I'm not going to walk in obedience. Hey, God, work, but I don't really want to give you my life. Hey, God, work, but you don't get to come between me and my sinfulness. I just want you to do what I want you to do. Now you're like, I thought our question was, is Jesus unique? And it is, because I want you to see John chapter 5, verse 16 and 17. It says, this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. John goes, hey, one of the reasons the religious leaders were after Jesus is because by their standard, by their rules, Jesus was breaking commandments. He was breaking the commandments around the Sabbath. And so they have a conversation with Jesus, which isn't really recorded here. We just get the answer that Jesus gives them, verse 17. But Jesus answered them, my father is working until now, and I am working. Jesus' response is, hey, you come at me saying that I'm breaking the Sabbath, but here's what you need to know. I am the Son of God. Like, you need to know that the God that gave you that commandment is my Father. I only do my Father's will. My Father's the one that told me to heal him on the Sabbath. My Father's working, and I'm here doing my Father's work. This is Jesus' big, audacious claim. I'm not a nobody. I'm a somebody. I am the unique Messiah, sent of God. He's my Father. This is one of the things that separates Jesus from anybody who has started any kind of religion. This is one of the things that separates Jesus from every world religion. No one 
has claimed to be God and has also done the things that Jesus has done. See, no one can say the things that Jesus says and no one can do what Jesus does is because there's no one like Jesus. There's nobody who has the claim that they are God. Listen, Abraham, who was followed by the Jews, was a prophet. He knew God. He talked to God. He had promises with God. The prophet Muhammad claimed to have met with God and received a word from God. Buddha just claimed to be a man who was enlightened. He had just kind of achieved the next level. Even a guy like Joseph Smith, who started the Mormon church, claimed that he was visited by an angel who gave him a way to unlock holy scrolls. But none of those are the claim of Jesus. Jesus doesn't claim to be enlightened. He He doesn't say that he met with God. His claim is that he is God, that he is the Son of God of God sent by his father to accomplish his father's will. And sometimes there will be people who go, Jesus never claimed to be God, but if you read the the gospels, Jesus always claimed to be God. Jesus would speak spiritually and metaphorically. He'd say things like, I am the bread of life. He would say, I am the light of the world. I am the door for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the true vine. Jesus say, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one gets to the Father except through me. And see, Jesus did all kind of miraculous things. But Jesus' miracles were one of the ways that he revealed who he was. Because I'm doing my Father's business, because I'm announcing my Father's kingdom, because I am the Messiah, these miracles follow, because I'm fulfilling the prophecies, I'm setting those who are chained free, the bondages are being broken. That Jesus would claim over and over again that he is God in the flesh. Paul says it this way, that Jesus is the image of the invisible God in Colossians 1.14. That when you see Jesus in the flesh, you see the Heavenly Father. When you hear Jesus' words, you hear the words of the Heavenly Father. When you see the way that Jesus would interact with people and love people and show compassion and mercy and sometimes even discipline them or say hard words, you would see the heart of the Heavenly Father. That Jesus comes to us that we might know God. That Jesus comes to us that we might understand who God is and that he loves us and that he's pursuing us and that he desires to embrace us. And that Jesus would announce that he's been sent by his Father to die in our place for our sins as the pure, holy, spotless, sacrificial lamb. And that Jesus would claim that he is coming to make a new covenant. One that is greater than the covenant God made with Abraham that he's come to fulfill all things because he is the Messiah. And see, the reason I wanted to share this with you in John 5 this morning is because then we see everything changes. John 5, 18. John says, this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Not because only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making him self equal with God. Like to the devout Jews and to the religious leaders, like listen, you can't argue 
with a guy who's been paralyzed for 38 years who's now doing the Macarena, right? I mean, all of a sudden this guy's running around, he's dabbing it out. People are like, he couldn't do that before. Like, you can't argue with that. That's miraculous. We can't explain that. But you know what we can be mad about? We can be mad that he did it on the Sabbath. Like Jesus chose the wrong day to heal somebody. And John says, that frustrated them. But the reason they wanted to kill him is because he claimed that he was the son of God and that made them angry. See, the reason they opposed Jesus, the reason they persecuted Jesus, the reason they hated Jesus, the reason they falsely accused Jesus, had him arrested, and ultimately killed him was because he claimed to be God. And the religious people thought they could end that. The religious people thought, hey, if we can kill him, then we kill his claim to be God. If we can put him in the grave, then we kill his claim to be holy, to be God's son, to be divine, to be sovereign and powerful. And so we know that according to history, through secular history like guys like Josephus, that Jesus really did live, that Jesus really was alive, that he really was crucified on a cross between two criminals. And that after he was dead, he was taken off the cross and he was buried in a Roman tomb, or a borrowed tomb, and he was guarded by Roman soldiers. Because there was so much controversy. What's going to happen next? And see, I love the fact that Jesus is buried in a borrowed tomb. That doesn't happen. You don't go to somebody's funeral and then you go out to the gravesite and you're like, oh, this is a nice plot. And they're like, well, this is just a friend of theirs. They're going to lend them this. Well, what do you mean lend them it? This is kind of a final resting place. But for Jesus... The final resting place was really like a rented prom tux. He only needed it for a couple nights, and then he planned to give it back. Because what we know from the scripture is that Jesus was crucified, he was dead, he was buried, but then he rose to life on the third day, which is the second thing that sets Jesus apart from everyone, the resurrection. That Jesus really did live, and he really did die, but then he rose again. I love the way that Paul talks about it in 1 Corinthians 15. Paul is someone who is one of these religious leaders. Paul is one of these guys that thinks if we can kill Jesus, if we can shut down the church, then this whole thing will go away and we can just be Old Testament Jews and get back to life. And Paul says, For I delivered to you that of which is first of importance, what also I received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures that he was buried and that he raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, and then to the twelve. And then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and then to the apostles. Last of all, is one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Paul goes, you know what changed my mind about Jesus? I saw him after we killed him. Like this resurrection thing happened. And Paul goes, for me, the resurrection changed everything. Because listen, you go to funerals all the time. But you've never gone to a funeral. And then the next day somebody goes, how was the funeral? Like, hey man, we buried him and I had breakfast with him the next day. It was wild. Like you've never had that story. But for Jesus, that was his story. 
But listen, if Jesus comes in the flesh, if he performs some miracles, if he does some cool things, if he walks on water, feeds the 5,000, like listen, if he heals people, if he teaches some things that really capture the attention and the hearts of people, but he dies, then the miracles die with him. The teachings die with him. His claim to be God dies with him. But if he raises on the third day, then everything he said was true. Everything he says has power. Everything he says should be considered and even believed in. See, one of the things I love about the gospel account is that even those closest to Jesus did not expect a resurrection. When Jesus is crucified, they deny him. They run for their lives. They think the guy that they loved and has believed is the Son of God. They think all of that is gone. They're defeated. They don't know what to do next. Here's the deal. As you read the Gospels, none of Jesus' first followers stood outside his tomb on the third day in like New Year's Eve style. We're like, 10, 9, 8. Yo, no, he's going to get up. 6, Resurrection Day. 5, it's going to be called Easter. 4, 3, nobody did that. Nobody was there. In fact, when his first followers showed up and they saw the stone was rolled away and the tomb was empty, their assumption was someone took the body of our Jesus. And see, what I would suggest to you is that, the, that you have to consider the burial place of Jesus. You have to consider the burial place of Jesus. And what I mean by that is this. No one today knows where Jesus was really buried. Listen, if you want to take a trip, we could all go together. That'd be expensive, but it'd be fun. Like, listen, you can go to the tomb of Abraham. It's called the Cave of Patriarchs. So they know exactly where Abraham was buried. Even though, like, there was no... Roman historians there, like they know where Abraham was buried and they built a building there. Uh, we can go to the Green Dome in Saudi Arabia where Muhammad is buried. And they built quite a nice structure to mark that he was buried there. In fact, Buddha, who was cremated, you can go to places like Sri Lanka to the Temple of the Tooth which, if you wonder, why did they met? Because that's just where one of his teeth are. And they built, they venerated the site and built a temple there. And yet today, if you go to Jerusalem and say, take me to the empty tomb, they'll take you here. This is called the garden tomb. And what they'll tell you, to be honest with you, they'll go, hey, we think Jesus was buried in a place like this. And here's the thing, we think this even could be where Jesus was buried, but we're not totally sure that this was the tomb. Now listen, that's interesting. Because when Jesus was buried, everybody knew where Jesus was buried. The people who buried him knew where he was buried. The Roman officials knew where he was buried. The soldiers knew where he was buried. Joseph, who got the tomb for him and owned the property, he knew where Jesus was buried. So what changed? And see, I would suggest to you that when Jesus was dead, everybody knew where his body was buried. But when Jesus rose on the third day, 
everyone's attention shifted from where is Jesus buried to where is Jesus because he's alive. Like when Jesus rose on the third day, nobody thought, hey, let's go back to the empty tomb, set up some markers here and build a building. No, no, no. They said, we're invited to go have breakfast with Jesus. Let's go. The attention shifted from where his body was to where his resurrected body was. See, like even guys like Elvis get Graceland. But Jesus has no place where people can tell you, we know for sure this is where he was buried. And the reason I believe in that is because Jesus, like the scripture says, was only buried for three days and he rose again. And see, for me personally, I'm just with the guy who claims to be God, who fulfills the prophecies, who performs the miracles, who tells his followers, I'm going to die in your place for your sins. I'm going to tear down the temple. I'm going to give you a new covenant, and I'm going to raise again on the third day. And then he does it exactly how he says he's going to do it. I'm with him. Like, he's worthy of my faith. I don't trust the guy who says he's enlightened. I don't trust the guy that says he met with an angel and got some special thing to read some scrolls. I'm not with the guy who claims he heard from God in the mountain. I'm with the guy who claims to be God, gives us evidences he is God, is crucified, and raises again on the third day. See, the foundation of Christianity is that Jesus did come, he was alive, he did die, and he rose again on the third day, which is why we care about his teaching, which is why we care about what he has to say. Listen, if Jesus died and stayed dead, then who really cares what he has to say? But if Jesus died and rose again on the third day, then because of the resurrection, we can have hope. Because of the resurrection, we can be forgiven. Because of the resurrection, our sins can be forgiven. Our life is secure. We have the promise of eternity. My past no longer defines me. My sin no longer rules me. I can experience eternal life, and I can experience abundant life, all because of who Jesus is and what he's done. So you should be clapping and saying amen if you believe that this morning. And see, the most important question we can answer personally is this. Who do I believe Jesus is? And see, we live in a culture that's a little bit weird to me because people be like, well, I love the teachings of Jesus. Like, I love what Jesus said about love. Man, we should just love one another. People are like, you know what, I want some of Jesus' principles on marriage and family. Like, I just kind of want that blessing in my roof. I want the shalom in the home. Some people are like, you know what, I need to get some inner healing. I want to deal with my anxiety. I want to deal with forgiveness. I want to deal with, you know, anger. And I think Jesus speaks to all that. So I'm just going to try to get me a little bit of Jesus in my life. Maybe slap on a WWJD bracelet. I don't know if anybody does it anymore, but they did. But here's the thing. Jesus never declared himself to be a great teacher. Jesus never said, hey, I'm here to be a social justice activist. Jesus never arrived on the scene and said, I'm here to save your marriages. And I'm here to give you shalom in the home. Jesus' life, his teaching, and his miracles were all based on the fact that he is the Messiah, that he is the Son of God, that he is the King of Kings and he is the Lord of Lords.
that he is the resurrection and that he is the life, that he is the sacrificial lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, that he is the victorious king who has defeated Satan, defeated sin, defeated death, and he now rules and he reigns and he has officially announced his kingdom that he invites us to where he is victorious over all things. And friends, can I just say it this way? It is crazy. Like, I'm not, I'm not being funny. I mean, literally insane for us to look at the teachings of Jesus and go, I'm going to take what I like, I'm going to throw out the rest and not believe that he was who he says he was. Like, if Jesus wasn't the Son of God, then why would you believe any of this? But if he is who he says he is, if the resurrection happened, then the appropriate response is to worship him for who he's revealed himself to be. The only proper response is to recognize our sinfulness and our need for Jesus and to repent of our sin and to surrender ourselves to him and to continually put our confidence and our belief and our trust in him and then walk in obedience to him because if he can walk out of the grave, then you and I can walk out of the grave too. Like if he is the son of God, if he is the gate, if he is the way, the truth, and the life, then I can walk into the presence of God because he's absorbed the wrath of God and forgiven me. And so friends, the question is, who do you believe Jesus is? See, the two things that separate Jesus from every single person on the planet is number one, the fact that he claimed to be God. And he proved it through his life and through his miracles and through his actions. And the resurrection. That even though those, those who hated him and opposed him put him on a cross, it was actually his father's will that he would die in our place for our sins. And that when he rose again on the third day, he accomplished everything he was meant to accomplish. The forgiveness of our sins. That we could be fully loved, fully accepted, adopted sons and daughters of God, who are no longer marked by our past, but are now new creations with new hearts and new minds and new identities forever saved in Christ and one with our Father, filled with the Holy Spirit. In Romans 10, 9, Paul says it this way. He says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. My question for you, friends, is do you believe in him? Have you put your trust in him? And have you repented of him? Because what sets Jesus apart from everybody else is that he claims to have come for you, to embrace you, to introduce you to his heavenly father, and to save you from your sin so that you could be fully loved, fully accepted, adopted by God as his child, that you would have every promise in the Bible hope for all eternity and you would walk in an inheritance now that will last forever. So I hope today you answer the question, Jesus is God. Jesus is Lord. And you respond to him by worshiping him. You respond by repenting of your sin. That you respond by acknowledging, I do need to be saved. That Jesus, you came for somebody like me and you put your faith and your trust in him. And if you're new or visiting, you might be here this morning and go, hey, it sounds like you're trying to convert me. Welcome to Redemption Church, <laughs> where we love Jesus, and we hope you love him too. Let me pray for us. 
Father God, we come before you this morning and we thank you for your word. We thank you for your truth that reveals to us Jesus. Father, today we profess and we believe that your truth, your word is living, active, breathing, sharper than a double-edged sword. God, that we don't interpret the Bible, but the Bible interprets us. That your word cuts between bone and marrow, between spirit and soul, God. And I pray this morning is that we read your word, that through the power of your Holy Spirit, God, that we would recognize Jesus for who he is. Not for who we've tried to create him to be, not for who we've tried to make Jesus out to be, that we would believe in the Christ of the Bible, the Messiah, the Son of God. God, I thank you that you would love us. God, I thank you that you would send us your Son because you so desire for us to be reconciled to you. God, that you didn't desire for us to walk in our sin and experience your wrath and be separated from you forever. But instead, you sent your son, who, although he was holy and perfect and spotless, would die in our place on the cross for our sin. And God, we praise you and thank you that the story didn't end there, but you rose again on the third day victorious in power, conquering Satan, conquering sin, and conquering death, not just in your own life, but also in our lives. So Jesus, help us this morning to put our faith in you. God, help us this morning to repent of our sin and to walk more in obedience to you, all for your glory and for our good, Jesus. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.